Hello, Really True Fiction listeners. I want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul will stop appearing on the Really True Fiction feed at the end of the summer. If you are enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts so that you can continue to get notified of new episodes starting in September. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Hello, you found the liberal soul. My name is Luke Mason. Welcome to part four of a four-part series I've been doing on the book The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. If this is the first one you're listening to, (laughs) I recommend listening to the first three parts, as this one jumps in kind of at the end of the book um, in the last quarter of it or so, where I finish up talking about Marx's prophecy, uh, Marx ethics, and a little bit of the aftermath and the conclusion. In the first two parts, I go through Karl Popper's critique of Plato and a lot of the early Platonists and Platonism. Part three is my hopefully comprehensible relaying of the critique of Hegel and the beginning of Marx, and today I'm going to finish up Popper's critique of Marx and why those three people in particular, Plato, Hegel, and Marx, are three of the people that, why those are the ones Popper goes after as being some of the greatest progenitors of the tendency towards the closed society versus the open society ethos. So I recommend listening to those earlier parts if this uh, episode is the first one that you're hearing. (laughs) And I know that these episodes have been maybe a little headier than some of the other Liberal Soul episodes I've been doing. So if that's not generally your cup of tea, I really appreciate the time and the effort and the listening that goes in. Um, I know we all got busy lives, and so I really appreciate anyone who does take the time to listen to the Liberal Soul. If you are enjoying the Liberal Soul, you can write a review or give it a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. That would be really awesome, and it's a really good way to help new people find the show. You can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com if you have any critiques or criticisms, or maybe you think I'm way off base with any of the stuff I'm talking about, especially in these episodes. That's more than welcome on my end. There's a Facebook group, The Liberal Soul, that you can join, and then I post also there when new episodes are available. And as well, there is a Twitter at LiberalSoul87 if you want to follow it there. Like I mentioned last time, I am no good at Twitter, so I'm still learning, so bear with me. But I guess if there's more people who start to follow, there'll be more reason for me to post on there. (laughs) So there it is. And I've recently decided that I'm going to start every episode with a joke, um, because anyone who knows me in my personal life will know that I am quite... uh, I'm the dad joke guy, so 
Uh, here it is. What do you get if you cross an elephant and a rhino? Eh, elephino. <laughs> there we go. Okay, so last episode, at the end of part three, I finished up with Marx's take on the legal and social systems. And today we're going to start in the more kind of like ethereal nature of Marx's uh, prophecy. So section three of volume two is Marx's prophecy in the chapter. The first chapter is the coming of socialism. And the first point that always resonated with me, even before I read this book about communism and, and a kind of a deeply seated intuition I had about something kind of rotten in the state of communism was the assumption of a classless society that would result of the inevitable warring between the bourgeoisie and the working class. Because I always thought that there's just no way to, to that like there's more than that. That's not the only way to divide interest groups in a society. There's plenty of other ways to do that. Here, let me read what Popper has to say on that front. Popper. Classes are not like individuals, even if we admit that they behave nearly like individuals so long as there are two classes who are joined in battle. The unity or solidarity of a class, according to Marx's own analysis, is part of their class consciousness, which in turn is very largely a product of the class struggle. There is no earthly reason why the individuals who form the proletariat should retain their class unity once the pressure of the struggle against the common class enemy has ceased. Any latent conflict of interests is now likely to divide the formerly united proletariat into new classes and to develop into a new class struggle. The principles of dialectics would suggest that a new antithesis, a new class antagonism, must soon develop. Yet, of course, dialectics is sufficiently vague and adaptable to explain anything at all, and therefore a classist society also as a dialectically necessary synthesis of an antithetical development. The most likely development is, of course, that those actually in power at the moment of victory, those of the revolutionary leaders who have survived the struggle for power and at the various purges, together with their staff, will form a new class, the new ruling class of a new society, a kind of new aristocracy or bureaucracy. And it is most likely that they will attempt to hide this fact. This they can do, most conveniently, by retaining as much as possible of the revolutionary ideology, taking advantage of these sentiments instead of wasting their time and efforts to destroy them, in accordance with Pareto's advice to all rulers. And it seems likely enough that they will be able to make fullest use of the revolutionary ideology if at the same time they exploit the fear of counter-revolutionary developments. In this way, the revolutionary ideology will serve them for apologetic purposes. It will serve them both as a vindication for the use they make of their power and a means of stabilizing it. In short, a new opium for the people. Yeah, I mean, that's so insightful on Popper's part is that the success of the revolution is going to breed a new ruling class, uh, as we obviously saw in the Soviet Union. <laughs> or more artistically, this is Animal Farm. This is Animal Farm in a nutshell the pigs of Animal Farm eventually becoming the ruling class of the farm again, and they're walking on two legs, and the animals couldn't tell the difference between the humans and the pigs who had once enslaved them and now who were the current enslavers of them. And I like that point too, because it's a, it mirrors something I've thought about a lot is like, yeah, there's not really a particular, there, there's no logic necessarily behind the fact that as soon as the workers of the world have united and won, that they're going to be united because social psychology and psychology in general has is certainly clear of the fact that one of the best ways to bind a people together is a common enemy but once the common enemy is gone 
you're back to not being totally sure what you feel about the people you've temporarily allied yourself with. And there's lots of different classes. There's not just working classes, and there's not just a single working class interest group. I mean, I'm trying to think of a Game of Thrones reference here where people allied themselves against a common enemy, but they were not really sure of how they'd feel about each other after their enemy was defeated. I don't know that show quite well enough, but I know that there were lots of factions that came together on very tenuous alliances to defeat the common enemy. And it's a massive oversimplification on the part of Marxists to say that there's only the bourgeoisie and there's only the working class. And once the revolution that must happen happens, that's when there won't be any more classes. No, there'll be a new ruling class because power abhors a vacuum. And another critique Popper has of Marx's prophecy is Marx's idea that all of his goals must inevitably come from socialism, because a lot of the things Marx talked about in what would be the socialist agenda have actually come to bear in democratic societies through not revolution, but long-term incremental reform. And I think that's a really important part to take into account, too. So uh, here's Popper's take on it. Popper. How utterly absurd it is to identify the economic system of the modern democracies with the system Marx called capitalism can be seen at a glance by comparing it with this 10-point program for the communist revolution. If we omit the rather insignificant points of this program, for instance, for confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels, then we can say that in the democracies, most of these points have been put into practice, either completely or to a considerable degree, and with them, many more steps which Marx had never thought of, have been made in the direction of social security. I mention only the following points in his program. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax carried out. Three, abolition of all rights to inheritance, largely realized by heavy death duties. Whether more would be desirable is at least doubtful. Six, central control by the state of the means of communication and transport. For military reasons, this was carried out in the Central Europe before the War of 1914 without very beneficial results. It has also been achieved by most of the smaller democracies. Seven, increase in the number and size of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, realized by the smaller democracies. Whether this is always very beneficial is at least doubtful. 10. Free education for all children in public, i.e. state schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. The first demand is fulfilled in the smaller democracies, and to some extent practically everywhere. The second has been exceeded. A number of points in Marx's program, for instance, one, abolition of all property and land, have not been realized in the democratic countries. This is why Marxists rightly claim that these countries have not established socialism. But if they infer from this that these countries are still capitalist, in Marx's sense, then they only demonstrate the dogmatic character of their presupposition that there is no further alternative. This shows how it is possible to be blinded by the glare of a preconceived system. Not only is Marxism a bad guide to the future, but it also renders its followers incapable of seeing what is happening before their own eyes, in their own historical period, and sometimes even with their own cooperation. Uh, and that's actually a point that I think was... Uh, made in Adam Gopnik's book, Thousand Small Sanities, what he called ghost Marxism, the inability to see what's happening in reality because of the commitment to the prophecy of the inevitability of socialism from Marx's work. The political interventionism that the democracies have adopted when it comes to capitalism and its markets have taken care of a lot of the programs that Marx wanted to implement through the revolution. And even though reform is a lot less sexy than the sloganeering of a revolution, it's much less violent, which is the whole point of the liberal project anyway. So that's kind of a, 
a funny reading you'll it'll probably come out more in this episode but reading this section of the book of the open society and its enemies i was reminded a lot of gopnik's book and a lot of gopnik's critique of marx and communism as being a kind of failed metaphysics in a sense that's always you know the philosopher in me is quite interested in how the commitment to a dogma and an ideology blinds you from changes in variable realities on the ground that is happening before your eyes. And often, as the point Popper makes there, through your own efforts. There is a term in modern parlance that I've heard. I think it's coined by Steven Pinker, the great uh, linguist and psychologist, called progressophobia. The fear of any progress made, lest it make people think that there's no more to be made. Well, no, we can admit the progress we've made on specific issues, especially around equality of the sexes and the ongoing unfinished but certainly improved relations and equality between different races and ethnicities of people. And there's a fun irony in the fact that a lot of the people who claim that we have made no progress have actually contributed to the progress that's been made. (laughs) don't be scared of taking credit (laughs) and i just i think that that's such a fun observation here by popper as well one other passage in this chapter that i wanted to read and just bring out so here's popper thus the marxist leaders knew better than to waste their time on such matters as technology workers of all countries unite that exhausted their practical program when the workers of their countries were united when there was an opportunity of assuming the responsibility of government and laying the foundations for a better world, when their hour had struck, they left the workers high and dry. The leaders did not know what to do. They waited for the promised suicide of capitalism. After the inevitable capitalist collapse, when things had gone thoroughly wrong, when everything was in dissolution and the risk of discredit and disgrace to themselves considerably diminished, then they hoped to become the saviors of mankind. And indeed, we should keep in mind the fact that the success of the communists in Russia was undoubtedly made possible in part by the terrible things that had happened before their rise to power. But when the Great Depression, which they first welcomed as the promised collapse, was running its course, they began to realize that the workers were growing tired of being fed and put off with interpretations of history. That it was not enough to tell them that according to the infallible scientific socialism of Marx, Fascism was definitely the last stand of capitalism before its impending collapse. The suffering masses needed more than that. Slowly, the leaders began to realize the terrible consequences of a policy of waiting and hoping for the great political miracle. But it was too late. Their opportunity was gone. And I think that that's just another reference to the... I don't know, maybe this has been studied well. I'm sure it's actually been studied well. But it seems to me one of the great, if not the great tragedy it seems strange to use that word but one of the great tragedies of communism and certainly in russia was when the bolsheviks won the revolution and took over what the fuck do we do now (laughs) marxism the spirit of marxism is so revolutionary and the spirit of extreme left-wing politics is by definition reactionary and revolutionary And the spirit of revolution and the spirit of reaction is so cathartic and it's so appealing and it pushes in the direction, especially if the um, prevailing social order is tyrannical or is more on the tyrannical side than on the democratic or freedom side, which I'm not an expert in, but I imagine 
Tsarist Russia was certainly on the more tyrannical side of the spectrum. So the ideas inherent in the pamphlets and the speeches of the revolutionaries is going to be really satisfactory and not without cause. But this is, I think, where the person committed to the open society or what I call the liberal soul is like, yeah, but okay, you win the revolution. Now what? (laughs) Now you're the status quo, dear revolutionary. Now you're in charge of things. How do we run an economy? How do we feed everybody? The workers, the vast proletariat working class of people that you claim to be out there to help, they didn't go to the universities. They don't have much time for the pablum of dialectics and praxis and social consciousness and class consciousness. That does not fill their stomachs. That does not help raise their children. That does not give them security in any of their psychological anxieties around their life. What are you going to do about all that stuff? And, well, I guess we saw. So then that brings us to the chapter on the social revolution. And like I noted earlier, Popper notes that there's more than one class for the working class to collapse into, or that there's more than two classes. And he gives an example of seven different ones that he notices in his time. I think he's writing in 1945. Popper. Thus, as opposed to Marx's prophecy, which insists that there must develop a neat division between the two classes, we find that on his own assumptions, the following class structure may possibly develop. One, bourgeoisie. Two, big land proprietors. Three, other landowners. Four, rural workers. Five, new middle class. Six, industrial workers. And seven, rabble proletariat. Any other combination of these classes may, of course, develop too. And we can find, furthermore, that such a development may possibly undermine the unity of six, the industrial workers. And so that's just a technical observation that Popper made about, like, well, classes don't collapse into one thing. They can collapse into several things. And, I mean, I, I think I made a point on my other podcast, Really True Fiction, about, like, human taste is so diverse and across the spectrum that there's no reason to assume that getting rid of a massive enemy is going to automatically unite people. I mean, it's just not human nature to be kind of on that grand of a scale united without some sort of enemy or without some sort of like abiding myth, like religion that can coerce behavior without enforcement costs of a political power. And because the quality of life is so often the priority for the working class, not so much their class consciousness. There's going to be competitions for that, kind of like at many different layers of analysis. It seems so strange to me that Marx couldn't see that. I guess the, I guess the, the, what he was calling capitalism in his day was so predatory and awful that maybe Marx couldn't envision a form of capitalism, and actually this is a point Popper makes, Marx couldn't envision a form of capitalism that wasn't full teeth out in the throat of every of the most vulnerable people at all times. So he couldn't imagine a form of capitalism that wouldn't unite the workers in a massive solidarity, which I think is a bit of an oversight on his part. Um, Because then that gets us into the whole concept of revolution and what revolutions do. And so here's Popper's thought on revolution. Popper. I am not in all cases and under all circumstances against a violent revolution. I believe with some medieval and Renaissance Christian thinkers who taught the admissibility of tyrannicide that there may be indeed, under a tyranny, be no other possibility and that a violent revolution may be justified. 
But I also believe that any such revolution should have as its only aim the establishment of a democracy. And by a democracy, I do not mean something as vague as the rule of the people or the rule of the majority. But a set of institutions, among them especially general elections, i.e. the right of people to dismiss their government, which permit public control of the rulers and their dismissal by the ruled, which make it possible for the ruled to obtain reforms without using violence, even against the will of the rulers. In other words, the use of violence is justified only under a tyranny which makes reforms without violence impossible, and it should have only one aim, that is to bring about a state of affairs which makes reforms without violence possible. I do not believe that we should ever attempt to achieve more than that by violent means. For I believe that such an attempt would involve the risk of destroying all prospects of reasonable reform. The prolonged use of violence may lead in the end to the loss of freedom, since it is liable to bring about not a dispassionate rule of reason, but the rule of a strong man. A violent revolution which tries to attempt more than the destruction of tyranny is at least as likely to bring about another tyranny as it is likely to achieve its real aims. And this is like a theme I've come up a few times on this podcast and and the other podcast I do about really being admiring of James Madison and his desire to have the revolution be the the American Revolution. And I think, I mean, again, I'm not a historical expert. I really think the major difference between the American and the French Revolution is that the American one developed an institution immediately after, as fast as it could, to federalize and then disperse power between different branches of government. So in the way that in the way that Popper just formulated it, the American Revolution really did come about in order to bring about a, a, a series of democratic institutions to check the power of individual rulers and kind of hamstring the aspirations of a strong man who, want, who might want more violence and more revenge. And I think, again, in the language of Popper, the French Revolution seemed a little bit more vague, will of the people, rule of reason, that again, doesn't cash out in any sort of practical institutional sense of checks and balances. And that final point of like a revolution leading to a new tyranny just as likely as leading leading to real aims. I mean, I think there's lots of revolutions in history that bear out the tyranny side more than the, it's kind of like revenge or vengeance, a tyranny of a different faction of people. Certainly the Russian Revolution is indicative of that. The French Revolution, the reign of terror until Napoleon, who was the strong man that came in, like as I talked about in Thousand Small Sanities, Gopnik, liberals aren't against revolution, but it's a last resort and it's the violent means of revolution are to be ended the moment, the exact moment they're no longer needed and not to be extended into any sort of like furthering of revenge. And I, I guess, I guess my skepticism, even if I share a lot of the ethical and even emotional presuppositions of a lot of more revolutionary, revolutionary or reactionary types in our current era on the left wing of the political spectrum. I'm skeptical and I don't quite trust the most thoroughgoing and thoughtful ending of any violence were the revolution to take place after it was no longer needed. I learned from Hitchens, a guy generally more known, I think, for the philosophy of art, George Santayana, gave the best definition of a zealot I've ever heard. And a zealot, according to Santayana, is someone who doubles their efforts the exact moment they lose sight of their aims. And the most underappreciated element of the American Revolution is how the founders of that country managed to temper 
and dissuade and defang the zealots among their ranks after they were victorious. Um, Not that it was total. Apparently there was a lot of, after the revolution, patriots would search out loyalists and not be very kind to them, the ones that were left, the ones that didn't go to Ontario. But nevertheless, I come back in in a really respectful manner to what James Madison was able to pull off through the Federalist Papers in the subsequent endgame of the American Revolution. And then another thing that um, Marx couldn't really see was the rise of the middle class in a kind of more tempered, regulated, and politically intervened on system of capitalism, and why that might be attractive to people in the lower classes. And then I think one of the most ethically incisive and damning element of the history of Marxism is what Popper calls its ambivalent attitude to violence. Obviously, (laughs) communist countries have used extreme violence against their own citizens, but Popper is making a more of a philosophical critique of their ambivalence towards using it. Popper. The prophetic argument is untenable and irreparable in all of its interpretations, whether radical or moderate. But for a full understanding of this situation, it is not enough to refute the modified prophecy. It is also necessary to examine the ambiguous attitude towards the problem of violence, which we can observe in both the radical and moderate Marxist parties. This attitude has, I assert, a considerable influence upon the question of whether or not the battle of democracy will be won. For wherever the moderate Marxist wing has won a general election, or come close to it, one of the reasons seems to have been that they attracted large sections of the middle class. This was due to their humanitarianism, to their stand for freedom and against oppression. But the systematic ambiguity of their attitude towards violence not only tends to neutralize this attraction, but it also directly furthers the interest of the anti-democrats, the anti-humanitarians, and the fascists. Just as an aside, I think that that is true in our time. The kind of ambiguity of organizations today towards violence from a left-wing perspective is something to be deeply suspicious of when coming to trust proclamations from their leaders. Back to Popper. There are two closely connected ambiguities in the Marxist doctrine, and both are important from this point of view. The one is an ambiguous attitude towards violence founded upon the historicist approach. The other is the ambiguous way in which Marxists speak about the conquest of political power by the proletariat, as the manifesto puts it. What does this mean? It may mean, and it is sometimes so interpreted, that the Workers' Party has the harmless and obvious aim of every democratic party, that of obtaining a majority and of forming a government. But it may mean, and it is often hinted by Marxists that it does mean, that the party, once in power, intends to entrench itself in this position, that is to say, that it will use its majority vote in such a way as to make it very difficult for others ever to regain power by ordinary democratic means. The difference between these two interpretations is most important. If a party which is at a certain time in the minority plans to suppress the other party, whether by violence or by means of a majority vote, then it recognizes by implication the right of the present majority party to do the same. It loses any moral right to complain about oppression, and, indeed, it plays into the hands of those groups within the present ruling party who wish to suppress the opposition by force. Man, there's so much baked into that, isn't there? The first point I would make is that I think, again, I come back so often to the ambiguity of language and the vagueness of a term like the conquest of political power by the proletariat. Because, again, there's a lot of different things that could mean. And propaganda is like 
propagandistic terms are terms that are so kind of broad and vague that they can be retroactively fit into whatever subsequent behavior is taken as what that was actually meant. And then it takes advantage of the hindsight bias in human psychology. And I just, I, I just, to me, that's flat out dishonest. Propaganda is just lying because it's a form of broadness that doesn't cash out in the sense of like, I know exactly what you're saying when you use your propaganda. And the second one is that if the people currently not in the ruling class have plans to oppress and have revenge and vengeance, there is no moral high ground there. It's just a matter of circumstance and who happens to control the levers of power. And I think, again, like that's that's one of the uncomfortable things to talk about of our time is that our activists in our current age interested in reaching equality between otherwise groups of people who have not been considered equal in the past, or are they interested in turning the tables and just having a different group of having the oppressor, the oppressed become the oppressors and vice versa. And I guess personally, like if that notion, a nasty taste in your mouth to even consider, I don't think you're taking the subject seriously enough because human resentment and motivation and desire to be in control and and dominate others is not restricted to any one gender or ethnicity or cultural group or religion. It's kind of latent in human nature. And that's what I love that Popper notes is that it's a lot deeper than any political ideology, although political ideologies can put some of that negative stuff on warp speed and most damningly can justify it as good. War is peace, slavery is freedom, and ignorance is strength. That's the power of political ideology to double-think us into saying something we just know isn't true. What's the Mark Twain quote? Lying is saying something's true that you just know it ain't. (laughs) And so then there's the cognitive overlays that make it possible to not have that bother you. (laughs) I also just want to read a passage here on the chapter where Papa writes about capitalism and its fate, because again, I'm not Mark's expert, but I guess in in the manifesto or Das Kapital, wherever he wrote it, there was an inevitability in Marx's work about the death of capitalism. It was going to come about no matter what because of the kind of untenable underpinnings. The the untenable underpinnings of capitalism would make it have to collapse under its own weight. It was an internal contradiction. And that might have been true in the capitalism that Marx observed. But I guess one of Popper's really, I think, strongest criticisms is that Marx had insufficient imagination about how capitalism could evolve and change based on political intervention and regulation and a more humane form of capitalism based on changing practices and labor laws so that it could take a lot of the teeth out of the predatory nature of capitalism while still maintaining some of the value of markets and and the innovations that come with competition and markets. And I think the more enlightened versions of capitalism have taken advantage of the human desire to create and innovate and cooperate with a group to bring new things to the world as opposed to squeeze every dollar out of their workers for profits. And again, I'm not a Pollyanna about capitalism, I know that that temptation is always there, that kind of like 
that lowly stamp of the origin is always in capitalism, but also so is the desire. Much like much like an individual human has the capacity for great good and great evil, I think of the same as capitalism. Capitalism has the potential for great good and great evil. It depends on which levers you can figure out how to pull and which parts of human human lives to incentivize. And at the time Marx was writing, he didn't see any there was not much concerted effort in reforming any of the hugely negative parts of capitalism that were basically killing children. And so I just think the form of it today would be unrecognizable to Marx, as, as Popper puts it. But most of the communists, and especially the upper class communists, were living under the prophecy from Marx that capitalism would have to collapse under its own weight. That was the inevitability of the final endgame of it. This passage, Popper points out some of the problems with that, that that go very deeply into the ethos of communism. Popper. This is the theory, and the communists acted accordingly. At first, they support the workers in their fight to improve their lot. But, contrary to all expectations and prophecies, the fight is successful. The demands are granted. Obviously, the reason is that they had been too modest. Therefore, one must demand more. But the demands are granted again. And as misery decreases, the workers become less embittered more ready to bargain for wages than to plot for revolution. Now the communists find that their policy must be reversed. Something must be done to bring the law of increasing misery into operation. For instance, colonial unrest must be stirred up, even when there is no chance of a successful revolution. And with the general purpose of counteracting the bourgeoisification of the workers, a policy fomenting catastrophes of all sorts must be adopted. But this new policy destroys the confidence of the workers. The communists lose their members, with the exception of those who are inexperienced in real political fights. They lose exactly those whom they described as the vanguard of the working class. Their tacitly implied principle, the worse things are, the better they are, since misery must precipitate revolution, makes the workers suspicious. The better application of this principle, the worse are the suspicions entertained by the workers. For they are realists. To obtain their confidence, one must work to improve their lot. Thus, the policy must be reversed again. One is forced to fight for the immediate betterment of the worker's lot and to hope at the same time for the opposite. With this, the inner contradictions of the theory produce the last stage of confusion. It is the stage when it is hard to know who is the traitor, since treachery may be faithfulness and faithfulness treachery. It is the stage when... Those who followed the party, not simply because it appeared to them, rightly, I am afraid, as the only vigorous movement with humanitarian ends, but especially because it was a movement based on a scientific theory, must either leave it or sacrifice their intellectual integrity, for they must now learn to believe blindly in some authority. Ultimately, they must become mystics, hostile to reasonable argument. It seems that it is not only capitalism which is laboring under inner contradictions which threaten to bring about its downfall." that kind of twisting of prophecy into coercion and i mean the bet only word there for for that passage is is double think this is this is kind of an inevi- inevitability of prophecy because prophecy i think i talked about it in maybe episode two of this where plato talks and aristotle talk a little bit about like the final perfect society that we'll get to but we just have no idea how that's going to work and if the prophecy of the future is supposed to be 100 years from now well what about if in 30 years we're like 80% of the way there like is that not good enough i mean the workers probably would say that would be 
because life is so much about compromise. <laughs> and I think the worker, the working class of most countries being realists understand that and are willing to compromise as their lot gets better so that they don't have to slide back into the pit of hell. But again, Marxists and communists and any historicists being utopians, 80% isn't good enough. It has to be 100%. And to lose support from the vanguard of your people, the vanguard of the revolution, is a contradiction in the ethos of your prophecy. And so you must coerce or root out traitors. I mean, nothing is more apparent to me as an observer of ideologies than how quickly they go after the person who is minutely dissenting from the party line, even if they agree with 99% of the party line. Part of that is probably the narcissism of the small difference. And part of it is just like perceived treachery is the greatest sin, uh, as Dante has reminded us. It's just interesting to note how Trotsky and uh, a la Snowball from Animal, Animal Farm becomes the greatest threat to the revolution. The most ardent people fighting in one year become the greatest threat to it the next year. This can never be overlooked by an honest and thoughtful observer of communism. And I think this observation is bookended by Popper in his in evaluation of the prophecy. And so I'll, I'll say it in Popper's words. Popper. The arguments underlying Marx's historical prophecy are invalid. His ingenious attempt to draw prophetic conclusions from observations of contemporary economic tendencies failed. The reason for this failure does not lie in any insufficiency of the empirical basis of the argument. Marx's sociological and economic analysis of contemporary society may have been somewhat one-sided, but in spite of their bias, they were excellent insofar as they were descriptive. The reason for his failure as a prophet lies entirely in the poverty of historicism as such. In the simple fact that even if we observe today what appears to be a historical tendency or trend, we cannot know whether it will have the same appearance tomorrow. And again, I just I think that that's why you can't make sweeping historical prophecies, because the predictions of the future, you only amplify the ones that get it right, and all the ones who get it wrong are lost into the mists of forgetfulness and the mists of history. <laughs> I noticed this with, with the news. A news will report on making a prediction, and if they get the prediction right, they'll like valorize themselves. And if they get the prediction wrong, they don't print an apology they just go on to the next news cycle the next uh, thing and, and and it you just have to notice that wait a minute that wasn't you you said that and it didn't happen <laughs> i don't even know if it's self-deception at that point maybe it is but it's also just like interests there's vested interests and the next major point that popper makes as he's kind of getting close to winding up at least marx's ethics is kind of the idea of the difficulty in necessarily believing in your own mind and self-criticism for ethics. Here's Popper's thoughts on that. Popper. Marx, I assert, would not seriously have defended moral positivism in the form of moral futurism if he had seen that it implies the recognition of future might as right. But there are others who do not possess his passionate love of humanity, who are moral futurists just because of these implications, i.e. opportunists wishing to be on the winning side. Moral futurism is widespread today. Its deeper, non-opportunist basis is probably the belief that goodness must ultimately triumph over wickedness. But moral futurists forget that we are not going to live to witness the ultimate outcome of present events. History will be our judge. What does this mean? 
that success will judge. The worship of success and of future might is the highest standard of many who would never admit that the present might is right. They quite forget that the present is the future of the past. The basis of all of this is a half-hearted compromise between a moral optimism and a moral skepticism. It seems hard to believe in one's conscience, and it seems to be hard to resist the impulse to be on the winning side. If we consider this question seriously, then we find that the decisive point is that our minds, our opinions, though largely dependent on our upbringing, are not totally so. If they were totally dependent on our upbringing, if we were incapable of self-criticism, of learning from our own way of seeing things, from our experience, then, of course, the way that we have been brought up by the last generation would determine the way in which we bring up the next. But it is quite certain that this is not so. Accordingly, we can concentrate our critical faculties on the difficult problem of bringing up the next generation in a way which we consider better than the way in which we have been brought up ourselves. The situation stressed so much by sociologism can be dealt with in an exactly analogous way. That our minds, our views, are in a way a product of society is, trivi is trivially true. The most important part of our environment is its social part. Thought, in particular, is very largely dependent on social intercourse. Language, the medium of thought, is a social phenomenon. But it simply cannot be denied that we can examine thoughts, that we can criticize them, improve them, and further and further that we can change and improve our physical environment according to our changed, improved thoughts. And the same is true of our social environment. If you can recall back from my part two of the Thousand Small Sanities episode, this is the difference of, I guess, temperament and philosophy between a leftist and a liberal in terms of determinism. A lot of the discourse around hardcore critical theory, which is kind of what is attributed to a lot of the way that Marx talked about the world is that it's deterministic. And what Popper is pointing out here, and I feel very much, is that, well, it's influential. Our, the social world and, and our consciousness and our social consciousness is influential, but it's not deterministic. We can reflect. We can observe, as Adam Smith called it, the man in the breast, as C.S. Lewis called it, in order to Christianify it, our conscience, that little part in you that kind of twinges a bit at a particular notion, if you think it might not be exactly the right thing that you should be doing. And then you think about it, and you can weigh options. And even though we're not totally rational creatures, we are partially rational creatures. And then that recursive ability to reflect, meditate, talk about particular issues with friends and loved ones to maybe get better clarity on what you think about something. In this sense, I would say dialectic in its best form, in its most authentic form, because it's not capital D dialectic, but small d dialectic. This is undeniably true. This is why we even consider telling the truth to other people so that they can take new information on board to decide what they want to do. It's treating yourself and other people in the in the language that Gopnik used in A Thousand Small Saturdays as a moral conscience capable of thinking and having a particular desire based on decisions that it can make for better or worse. And I think that this is a totally fair criticism of the Marxist way of thinking is that the determinism removes the capacity of self-criticism, of changing your mind, and of thinking differently about something with new information. Not just Marxism, prophecy in general which is the poverty of the historicist approach that Popper has been the, the main thesis of this whole book is the criticism of that approach. What I'm saying, I guess, is deep in the ethos of the liberal soul 
is the belief in the rational ability to self-criticize, to reflect, and to change your mind. And so then the last chapter before, or the last section before the conclusion is called The Aftermath, where Popper talks a little bit about the sociology of knowledge and then oracular philosophy and the revolt against freedom. There is an opening quote of the sociology of knowledge by the great British philosopher Bertrand Russell, who was, I guess, a little, like, probably a generation before Popper, but still alive when Popper was writing. Maybe they were closer in age. I'm not sure. I'd have to look that up. But Bertrand Russell is an incredible philosopher in the history of philosophy. And so here's the quote of Bertrand Russell at the beginning of the sociology of knowledge chapter. Rationality, in the sense of an appeal to a universal and impersonal standard of truth, is of supreme importance, not only in ages in which it easily prevails, but also, and even more, in those less fortunate times in which it is despised and rejected as the vain dream of men who lack the virility to kill where they cannot agree. As Sam Harris says, we have conversation or we have violence. And part of this is a defense of the idea that though not perfect, rationality is still our best tool for discovering new truths about the world, mostly because it doesn't claim to be perfect. It claims to be kind of this arm's length way of solving problems between humans. And like I say, often reason and rationality is better in practice than it is in theory. And here's Popper kind of giving an observation of that and that method of thinking when it comes to science and the natural sciences. Popper. Scientific objectivity can be described as the intersubjectivity of scientific method. But this social aspect of science is almost entirely neglected by those who call themselves sociologists of knowledge. Two aspects of the method of the natural science are of importance to this connection. Together they constitute what I might term the public character of the scientific method. First, there is something approaching free criticism. A scientist may offer his theory with the full conviction that it is unassailable. But this will not impress his fellow scientists and competitors. Rather, it challenges them. They know that the scientific attitude means criticizing everything, and they are little deterred even by authorities. Secondly, scientists try to avoid talking at cross-purposes. I may remind the reader that I am speaking of the natural sciences, but a part of modern economics may be included. They try very seriously to speak one and the same language, even if they use different mother tongues. In the natural sciences, this is achieved by recognizing experience as the impartial arbiter of their controversies. When speaking of experience, I have in mind experience of a public character, like observations and experiments, as opposed to experiences in the sense of more private, aesthetic, or religious experience. And an experience is public if everybody who takes the trouble can repeat it. In order to avoid speaking at cross-purposes, scientists try to express their theories in such a form that they can be tested, i.e. refuted or else corroborated by such experience. Yeah, that public nature of the scientific method is so crucial. I like that not going at cross purposes because it jives with something philosophically I think about language, and I will have talked about in the episode with on George Orwell. The spirit of the scientific ethos is to make sure that the people that you're demonstrating your scientific theory to or hypothesis, they know what you mean by the words that you use. So that later, if there's a discontinuity in 
your hypothesis. You can't hide behind the language. The desire to hide behind the language is, I think, indicative of the politician or the bureaucrat or the revolutionary. And it's not always conscious. I think it can be uh, habituated into subconsciousness. Whereas the ethos, I think, of philosophers in the traditional sense of lovers of wisdom and scientists and once upon a time journalists is making sure that you can be pinned down to a particular definition of the word you're using in this context. And again, I would point out with the meta-awareness that words don't have any ultimate meaning other than what we mean by them when we use them, which is a concept I call the doubleness of being a liberal-minded person. Language is a good example. Using a word with other people to be honest about what your psychological intent is by using that word, while also realizing that the word itself doesn't have an ultimate meaning because language is a tacit convention between people that grows out of an interplay anyway. But that's a different podcast for a different time. Popper finishes the chapter on the sociology of knowledge by re-emphasizing his need or or his uh, insistence on piecemeal social engineering, which we might be called reforms in a democratic society for slow incremental improvement. Popper, it is true that the social sciences have not yet fully attained this publicity of method. This is due partly to the intelligence-destroying influence of Aristotle and Hegel, partly perhaps also to their failure to make use of the social instruments of scientific objectivity. Thus, they are really total ideologies, or putting it differently, some social scientists are unable and even unwilling to speak a common language. But the reason is not class interest, and the cure is not a Hegelian dialectical synthesis, nor self-analysis. The only course open to the social sciences is to forget all about the verbal fireworks and to tackle the practical problems of our time with the help of the theoretical methods, which are fundamentally the same in all sciences. I mean the methods of trial and error, of inventing hypotheses which can be practically tested, and of submitting them to practical tests. A social technology is needed whose results can be tested by piecemeal social engineering. And he continues in the next chapter, which is the oracular philosophy and the revolt against reason as um, defending reason and defending a kind of interpersonal way of understanding the world with each other that involves speaking as if the person you're talking to can understand your points and of being a little bit more precise in what we mean by things like respect for tradition. Popper changes that concept in this example. It's like, well, yeah, we, we should expect, we should respect tradition, but not for its own sake. We should respect the traditions that are worth respecting and discard the ones that aren't worth respecting based on our moral conversation with each other. Here's Popper on that point. Popper. Therefore, in speaking of a social theory of reason or of a scientific method, I mean more precisely that the theory is an interpersonal one, and never that it is a collectivist theory. Certainly, we owe a great deal to tradition, and tradition is very important. But the term tradition also has to be analyzed into concrete personal relations. And if we do this, then we can get rid of that attitude which considers every tradition as sacrosanct or as valuable in itself, replacing this by an attitude which considers traditions as valuable or pernicious, as the case may be, according to their influence upon individuals. We thus may realize that each of us, by way of example and criticism, may contribute to the growth or the suppression of such traditions. I love this idea because it places us squarely in the decision-making of traditions. 
as well as, as simply being kind of a, a pawn to them. If you think about it in, in traditions that we have in life, I think that this is totally sensible. One of, if not the great tradition of, of our cultures and Western culture is, is that of Christmas. The songs and the treats and the presents and the tree and the lights. Now, some people argue that it's hypocritical to celebrate this tradition if you're not Christian because it, it represents the birth of Jesus. I'm not even going to, it doesn't even matter, setting aside the fact that December 25th is almost certainly not Jesus' birthday and that a lot of the uh, traditions were inherited from the Germanic pagan cultures and the, and the Yuletide celebration in order that the conversion of said Northern Europeans was a little easier to Christianity. No, we, we can engage in, in a, in a self-critical and thoughtful manner of what Christmas might mean to us individually. Um, and I feel like this is something I've done a lot in my life, having been raised in a Christian house and really believing in the kind of like capital T truth of the Jesus story and the metaphysical implications of it and Christmas being celebratory of that. Well, no, I, I realize that lots of people who don't believe in God celebrate Christmas because of what it does for us what it does for people, what it does for children and the excitement and how beautiful the songs are and how good the kitchen smells and how much fun it is to think of. I mean, it can be stressful. There's obviously a shadow side to all of this kind of stuff, but how much fun it is to look for presents for people that you love and, and to find the perfect present or to make the perfect present and the kind of how the tree looks, how the light looks. It's just pretty, especially with the snow. All of this can be engaged in in a self-critical and socially, and and in a sense, like a social method that's interpersonal. Um, It doesn't necessarily need to be interpersonal. I think I'm extending it interpersonally of what can be psychologically just thinking about it for yourself. And I know I, I know this to be true because I've done it for myself. And Christmas is an example. And there's other examples of things that have had a religious infusion before that I now still celebrate, but in a more with a, with a secular taste, I guess. And so the small d dialectic is possible in your own mind and between people. And I guess that's what I kind of consider highest common denominator and, and hard-nosed liberalism to be, is to be that kind of deep respect you have for the brain and, and spirit, again, small s spirit, of another person where you can engage in realistic interpersonal conversation about how to change your mind on things and and then that way participate in their tradition like i was talking about with christmas this is an exclamation point on all of this which goes back to john stuart mill popper reason like science grows by ways of mutual criticism the only possible way of planning its growth is to develop those institutions that safeguard the freedom of this criticism that is to say the freedom of thought institutions that safeguard the freedom of thought. I welcome the listener to decide for themselves the current state of our cultures around institutionally safeguarding the freedom of thought. (laughs) I think it's a perennial challenge that we must always be up for. And this just tangentially, I mean, this would be a totally different podcast, but I've often wondered, like, what's a replacement, what's a potential replacement for human incentive that isn't purely fear or purely monetary? And I think I'd have to develop this thought more, but I think a potential replacement is sincere, good-hearted, and honest competition between respected peers. So I, 
I haven't done this study, but I bet you a lot of scientists are socially course corrected back into honesty and and objectively coming over their own biases because they know that they're going to be criticized by people just as smart as them, just as knowledgeable as them in their area and people that they want to impress with their work. If you if you have a peer who will authentically and experientially has happened will cut to shreds your idea, you know that when they don't, you've really got something. And I think that pursuit of innovation and improvement can be had at the level of friendly peer competition. So I put this out into the universe as a thought, like how to harness peer competition for better results in a field. An example I've talked about with my cousin David on Really True Fiction is teaching. I have experience as a teacher and obviously doing right by the students is always what you want. But it isn't always what you want. There are teachers who don't care about that. They like their paycheck and they like their freedom or whatever. But to be held accountable to other teachers who work just as hard as you, just as thoughtful. I mean, forget about teaching. Think about sports like hockey players are most motivated by other hockey players, by people who are on the ice with them, as it were, in the trenches, working hard. Harnessing that peer appreciation, I think, in an ethical way, is it's got to be the future of motivation. Anyway, um, a lot of this chapter is actually Popper being quite detailed on the difference between rationalism and irrationalism and how the irrationalism always has the kind of upper hand because even by Popper's own estimation, rationalism isn't deeper than itself. There is no platonic form of rationalism, which is part of his whole complaint about Plato. So irrationalism, there's no reason to choose reason and rationality over irrationalism and irrationality other than I think, and and Popper ultimately comes to except for ethical reasons, because irrationalism actually can create way more harm and violence in the world in a a reality-based sense. Here's a passage of Popper talking about the consequences of irrationalism. Popper, let us examine the consequences of irrationalism first. The irrationalist insists that emotions and passions rather than reason are the mainsprings of human action. To the rationalists reply that, though this may be so, we should do what we can to remedy it, and we should try to make reason play as large a part as it possibly can, the irrationalist would rejoin, if he condescends to a discussion, that this attitude is hopelessly unrealistic, for it does not consider the weakness of human nature, the feeble intellectual endowment of most, and their obvious dependence upon emotions and passions. Popper continues, It is my firm conviction that this irrationalist emphasis upon emotion and passion leads ultimately to what I can only describe as crime. One reason for this opinion is that this attitude, which is at best one of resignation towards the irrational nature of human beings, at worst one of scorn for human reason, must lead to an appeal to violence and brutal force as the ultimate arbiter in any dispute. For if a dispute arises, then this means that those more constructive emotions and passions, which might in principle help to get over it, reverence, love, devotion to a common cause, etc., have shown themselves incapable of solving the problem. But if that is so, then what is left to the irrationalist except the appeal to other and less constructive emotions and passions, to fear, hatred, envy, and ultimately to violence? This tendency is very much strengthened by another and perhaps even more important attitude, which is also, in my opinion, inherent in irrationalism namely the stress on the inequality of men. 
It cannot, of course, be denied that human individuals are, like all other things in our world, in very many respects very unequal. Nor can it be doubted that this inequality is of a great importance and even in many respects highly desirable. The fear that the development of mass production and collectivization may react upon men by destroying their inequality or individuality is one of the nightmares of our times. But all this simply has no bearing upon the question whether or not we should decide to treat men, especially in political issues, as equals, or as much like equals as it is possible, that is to say, as possessing equal rights and equal claims to equal treatment. And it has no bearing upon the question whether we ought to construct political institutions accordingly. Equality before the law is not a fact, but a political demand based upon a moral decision. And it is quite independent of the theory, which is probably false, that all men are born equal. Yeah, I mean, this really echoes, I think, kind of my whole framework, my intellectual framework around science and liberalism, is that I think it's captured best. I think it's a Rebecca Newberger Goldstein quote. Science is the best method we have for determining what is true in the world. And it takes a philosophical argument to demonstrate that. Political demands based on moral decisions. I think that this is like a fundamental nature of this book is that the justification of the efficacy of rationality and reason isn't the genesis of the justification of rationality and reason for Popper isn't rationality and reason. It is, in fact, a moral demand. And that's what I've always vitiated, too. That's the kind of bootstrapping of how we even uh, I think it was maybe episode uh, the second part of this where I talked about the noble truth. The noble truth is that we make moral demands on our fellows towards rationality and reason, towards political equality in front of the law, regardless of any factual equality or inequality. I mean, look at any people. I am (laughs) no Michael Jordan. I am no Carl Sagan. I am no Jimi Hendrix. There's inequalities across the board based on output. But the moral triumph and not a final triumph, but a moral victory of democracies, is that all of the disparate, talented of people are always equal before the law. Everyone gets one vote, uh, no more, no less. In fact, that's why it's such a huge deal if we're talking about election fraud. Um, I think that this is some of the deep philosophical background behind why that is something worth taking seriously. I love how Popper formulates these things. Popper continues, I refuse, on moral grounds, to be impressed by these differences. For the decisive similarity between all these intellectually immodest views is that they do not judge a thought on its own merits. By thus abandoning reason, they, they being um, the revolters against reason and the irrationalists, they split mankind into friends and foes, into the few who share in reason with the gods and the many who don't, as Plato says, into the few who stand near and the many who stand far, into those who speak the untranslatable language of our own emotions and passions, and those whose tongue is not our tongue. Once we have done this, political equalitarianism becomes practically impossible. Popper continues, I do not overlook the fact that there are irrationalists who love mankind, and that not all forms of irrationalism engender criminality. But I hold that he who teaches that not reason but love should rule opens the way for those who rule by hate. Socrates, I believe, saw something of this when he suggested that mistrust or hatred of argument is related to mistrust or hatred of man. Those who do not see this connection at once, who believe in a direct rule of emotional love, should consider that love as such certainly does not improve impartiality, and it cannot do away with conflict either. 
That love as such may be unable to settle a conflict can be shown by considering a harmless test case, which may pass as representative of more serious ones. Tom likes the theater, and Richard likes dancing. Tom lovingly insists on going to a dance, while Richard wants, for Tom's sake, to go to the theater. This conflict cannot be settled by love. Rather, the greater the love, the stronger will be the conflict. There are only two solutions. One is the use of emotion, and ultimately of violence, and the other is the use of reason, of impartiality, of reasonable compromise. All this is not intended to indicate that I do not appreciate the difference between love and hate, or that I think that life would be worth living without love, and I am quite prepared to admit that the Christian idea of love is not meant in a purely emotional way. But I insist that no emotion, not even love, can replace the rule of institutions controlled by reason. Liberals love reason, so we can go discover what it is to be alive, <laughs> to paraphrase. Popper, the political demand for piecemeal as opposed to utopian methods corresponds to the decision that the fight against suffering must be considered a duty, while the right to care for the happiness of others must be considered a privilege confined to the close circle of their friends. Thus, a rationalist, even if he believes himself to be intellectually superior to others, will reject all claims to authority, since he is aware that, if his intelligence is superior to that of others, which is hard for him to judge, it is so only insofar as he is capable of learning from criticism as well from his own and other people's mistakes, and that one can learn in this sense only if one takes others and their arguments seriously. Rationalism is there bound up with the idea that the other fellow has a right to be heard and to defend his arguments. It thus implies the recognition of the claim to tolerance, at least, of all those who are not intolerant themselves. One does not kill a man when one adopts the attitude of first listening to his arguments. Also, the idea of impartiality leads to that of responsibility. We have not only to listen to arguments, but we have a duty to respond, to answer, where our actions affect others. Ultimately, in this way, rationalism is linked up with the recognition of the necessity of social institutions to protect freedom of criticism, freedom of thought, and thus the freedom of men. And it establishes something like a moral obligation towards the support of these institutions. This is why rationalism is closely linked up with the political demand for practical social engineering, piecemeal engineering, of course, in the humanitarian sense, for planning for freedom and for its control by reason, not by a platonic, a pseudo-rational authority, but by that Socratic reason which is aware of its limitations and which therefore respects the other man and does not aspire to coerce him, not even into happiness. And Popper concludes his argument of the connection between, therefore, reason and humanitarianism versus irrationalism's claim to be, at times, humanitarian. Popper. But reason, supported by imagination, enables us to understand that people who are far away, whom we shall never see, are like ourselves, and that their relations to one another are like our relations to those we love. A direct emotional attitude towards the abstract whole of humankind seems to me hardly possible. But we can love humankind only in certain concrete individuals. But by the use of thought and imagination, we may be ready to help all who need our help. All these considerations show, I believe, that the link between rationalism and humanitarianism is very close, and certainly much closer than the corresponding entanglement of irrationalism with anti-equalitarian and anti-humanitarian attitude. I believe that as far as possible, the result is corroborated by experience. A rationalist attitude seems to be usually combined with a basically equalitarian and humanitarian outlook. Irrationalism, on the other hand, exhibits in most cases at least some of the anti-equalitarian tendencies described, even though it may often be associated with humanitarian humanitarianism also. My point is that the latter connection is anything but well-founded. 
For irrationalism will use reason too, but without any feelings of obligation. It will use it or discard it as it pleases. And that reminds me of Gopnik's sense of opportunistic essentialism. Uh, the irrationalist can be opportunistically rationalist if it suits their purposes. And so there's a kind of like capriciousness to it, which I would argue against. And that brings us to the very last chapter of the book. I can't believe I finally got here. The conclusion. And the name of that chapter is, Has History Any Meaning? And Popper, I think, importantly for our purposes, begins it by talking about how the historicist might conceive of this question. So, Popper. To translate this metaphor, the historicist does not recognize that it is we who select and order the facts of history, but he believes that history itself, or the history of mankind, determines by its inherent laws ourselves, our problems, our future, and even our point of view. Instead of recognizing that historical interpretation should answer a need arising out of the practical problems and decisions which face us, the historicist believes that in our desire for historical interpretation, there expresses itself the profound intuition that by contemplating history we may discover the secret, the essence of human destiny. Historicism is out to find the path on which mankind is destined to walk. It is out to discover the clue to history, or the meaning of history. And then on the next page, Popper says... In his opinion, history has no meaning. And what does he mean of this? His point is that there isn't actually a history of humankind. There's a history of the, uh, what we might say, history is written by the victors. Popper fleshes that out a little bit more of why he says history doesn't actually have a meaning because we haven't gotten everybody's uh, perspective in the sense that we haven't got everyone's contribution who's ever existed in history to make it full. So here's what Popper says about that. There is no history of mankind. There is only an indefinite number of histories of all kinds of aspects of human life, and one of these is the history of political power. This is elevated into the history of the world, but this, I hold, is an offense against every decent conception of mankind. It is hardly better than to treat the history of embezzlement or of robbery or of poisoning as the history of mankind, for the history of power politics is nothing but the history of intentional crime and mass murder, including, it is true, some of the attempts to suppress them. This history is taught in schools, and some of the greatest criminals are extolled as its heroes. But is there really no such thing as a universal history in the sense of a concrete history of mankind? There can be none. This must be the reply of every humanitarian, I believe, and especially that of every Christian. A concrete history of mankind, if there were any, would have to be the history of all men and women. It would have to be the history of all human hopes, struggles, and sufferings. For there is no one person more important than any other. Clearly, this concrete history cannot be written. We must make abstractions. We must neglect, select. But with this, we arrive at the many histories, and among them at that history of international crime and mass murder, which has been advertised as the history of humankind. Man, that thought arrested me the first time I read it. It's like history, history doesn't have a deep meaning because we're only getting very selected and often power politics versions of it. So in that sense, it's a kind of, like he says, it's an element of history, but not the whole shebang, which would be impossible to write. And thus, it's like an unfinished book, I guess. But are we supposed to live with no meaning? Of course not. This is um, the existential side of myself and Popper is that though history has no meaning, we can give it our own meaning because we are actually responsible for the way that we think about the world anyway, because of our moral consciences and our ways of self-criticism and reflection and the respect we pay to our fellow creatures, other homo sapiens, other humans, when we use reason and rationality and assume that they are able to answer in kind. 
And so here is the last segment of the book I will read from Popper on the meaning of history and how we may endue it with such. Popper. Although history has no ends, we can impose these ends of ours upon it, and although history has no meaning, we can give it a meaning. It is the problem of nature and convention which we meet here again. Neither nature nor history can tell us what we ought to do. Facts, whether those of nature or those of history, cannot make the decision for us. They cannot determine the ends we are going to choose. It is we who introduce purpose and meaning into nature and into history. Humans are not equal, but we can decide to fight for equal rights. Human institutions, such as the state, are not rational, but we can decide to fight to make them more rational. We ourselves, in our ordinary language, are, on the whole, emotional rather than rational, but we can try to become a little more rational, and we can train ourselves to use our language as an instrument not of self-expression, as our romantic educationists would say, but of rational communication. History itself, I mean the history of power politics, of course, not the non-existent story of the development of humankind, has no end nor meaning. But we can decide to give it both. We can make it our fight for the open society and against its enemies, who, when in a corner, always protest their humanitarian sentiments in accordance with Pareto's advice. And we can interpret it accordingly. Ultimately, we may say the same about the meaning of life. It is up to us to decide what shall be our purpose in life to determine our ends. This dualism of facts and decisions is, I believe, fundamental. Facts as such have no meaning. They can gain it only through our decisions. Historicism is only one of many attempts to get over this dualism. It is born of fear, for it shrinks from realizing that we bear the ultimate responsibility, even for the standards we choose. But such an attempt seems to me to represent precisely what is usually described as superstition for it assumes that we can reap where we have not sown. It tries to persuade us that if we merely fall into step with history, everything will and must go right, and that no fundamental decision on our part is required. It tries to shift our responsibility onto history, and thereby onto the play of demiatic powers beyond ourselves. It tries to base our actions upon the hidden intentions of these powers, which can be revealed to us only in mystical inspirations and in intuitions, and it thus puts our actions and ourselves on the moral level of a man who, inspired by horoscopes and dreams, chooses his lucky number in a lottery. Like gambling, historicism is born of our despair in the rationality and responsibility of our actions. It is a debased hope and a debased faith, an attempt to replace the hope and the faith that springs from our moral enthusiasm and the contempt for success by a certainty that springs from a pseudoscience, a pseudoscience of the stars or of human nature, of a historical destiny. Historicism, I assert, is not only rationally untenable, it is also in conflict with any religion that teaches the importance of conscience. For such a religion must agree with the rationalist attitudes towards history in its emphasis on our supreme responsibility for our actions and for their repercussions upon the course of history. True, we need hope to act. To live without hope goes beyond our strength. But we do not need more, and we must not be given more. We do not need certainty. Religion, in particular, should not be a substitute for dreams and wish fulfillment. It should resemble neither the holding of a ticket in a lottery nor the holding of a policy in an insurance company. The historicist element in religion is an element of idolatry, of superstition. And that really just sums up basically the kind of moral weight behind all of this, is that this entire book, really, The Open Society and Its Enemies, is a tome fundamentally on the importance of radical self-responsibility and self it's our responsibility to make the world better there's no god that's going to do it there's no special law of nature there's no historicist impulse there's no march of history it's just us 
and our consciences and our ability to rationally communicate with each other about improvement for the lot of other people. Now, this is a long book, so I really don't expect anyone (laughs) to read it, but it is an incredible book. It's a really eye-opening one for me. It's probably the most thorough take on social liberal philosophy that I've ever come across, and it's so good because Popper is so aware of so many other disciplines like psychology and biology and sociology. He incorporates all of it into his theses and then antitheses and then syntheses. <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't want to haggle over prices. Now, I don't know. I'm still left with this kind of, um, okay, now what? And I think that that's kind of the point of these kind of books is that there is no end other than the ends we give them, and then they're not the final ends. So one of the things I've learned in general is that a lot of these intellectual points, basically everything in intellectual life that is capitalized in uh, written work will work way better if you just make it small letter, uncapitalized, treat it at arm's length, use it as a tool rather than an essence. And that's how I conceive of improvement, I guess, and, and how I, it's just my view of the world. I think that's part of the liberal soul is this um, ability to use abstraction in conversation, but not hold on to it too tightly if it crumbles under investigation of the empirical world end of logic. So thus ends the marathon, the behemoth four-parter. If you've stuck through this far, you are a champion and I very deeply appreciate you. If you have any thoughts on this four-part little mini-series I've done on the Open Society and its enemies, you can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. You can probably send me a message on Facebook on the Liberal Soul page. If you like the Liberal Soul, please tell all your friends, uh, any of your friends especially who are are philosophy nerds like me. I hope they get a kick out of a book like this. I know I sure did. And uh, if you feel so inclined to leaving a rating or a review on uh, Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Once again, thank you everyone for listening to me and to a lot of Karl Popper. You found the liberal soul.